Welcome back to Year of Polygamy a Year Later. This episode is five out of six episodes. Our final interview for this year will be with Don Bradley talking about Fanny Alger, and that should be up shortly. Please consider a donation to the podcast and becoming a monthly subscriber. Your subscription helps supplement the cost of this program as well as other podcast series like Color of Heaven, Story of Woman, and more. Become a subscriber at yearpolygamy.com. Also, as a heads up for this episode, we are going to be covering multiple themes of abuse and assault, so please listen without children in the room. Thanks. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm excited to bring to you someone who is sort of a rock star in this in this topic, which is kind of a strange thing to say. But you might have heard of the organization Holding Out Help. They are one of the only organizations that I know that goes in and actually rescues and helps people who are leaving some of these fundamentalist groups. And the the director, the executive director of that organization is here with us tonight, and she is someone who I admire greatly. Tanya Tool, can you say hello? Hello. Thank you for having me, Lindsay. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for coming. Did I, maybe I sort of clumsily told about your organization. Do you want to tell us what Holding Out Help is, and then we'll kind of get into the history of it? Sure. Um, Holding Out Help is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that um, solely serves people that are coming out of polygamy. Um, and we try to provide all the necessary resources that basically a refugee coming in from another country might need. So um, anything from, you know, the basic necessities of life, of food, clothing, and shelter. Um, then we do more in-depth resources such as counseling, education, um, even the most basic of life skills. We try to teach um, those that are that are actually leaving. So. So you guys have been around for a while and I've, you know, sent a lot of people your way, but I want you to talk about, um, since this is a history podcast and we covered sort of the history of polygamy, I want to talk about how you first got into this. And I want to talk about sort of the landscape of this activism when you were, when you first started and what it looks like now. So tell us first a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I am a mother um, of three beautiful children uh, from Nebraska, actually, originally moved to Utah roughly about, gosh, I want to say a little over 20 years now, Um, knew really nothing about, uh, you know, the mainstream Mormon culture, let alone the fundamentals Mormon culture here. Uh, Background is is in banking and finance, ended up having my first child and uh, being a stay-at-home mom for 10 years until... Um, this topic kind of came to the forefront for us, and my husband and I just felt like we really couldn't turn a blind eye any longer and, and started holding out help. So so it's interesting because, like you said, you don't have a, a Mormon background, but you've, you're quite acquainted with it. So what was your, what did you know about Mormonism before you started? You know, it, it's kind of interesting, you know, in high school in Nebraska, one of my dearest friends was, I always knew her as a Mormon, and uh, she was the good girl in our group and um, absolutely loved her, made great choices in life, um, but I knew nothing more about it. And then, um, unfortunately, some, some things happened in her life where the parents literally quit their jobs and, and moved her out of, actually out of state here to Utah and cut off all contact with us. 
um, and all of our friends. And then when I moved out here 20 some years ago, when we were driving around with our realtor, um, I remember actually asking her what this LSD thing was. And um, she laughed because as you may know, LSD is actually a drug. And, um, and she said, do you mean LDS? And I said, yes, what's this LDS thing? And she um, explained to me that they were also called Mormons. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's my friend that, you know, I knew in Nebraska. Um, that's what she called herself. And so she said, well, I am Mormon. And then she kind of described what that meant for her. And that was really my first, I guess, introduction. Um, I remember looking at homes here and we we were like, what are these basements, these extra rooms? And everybody has all this storage down there. And, and you know, she kind of explained that, you know, part of the Mormon culture for when there's, you know, some kind of a tragedy that they have, you know, extra supplies that they can live off of. And, and you know, we've been around multiple states um, and have never seen anything like that. And so it was just a really interesting, eye-opening time for me of just, you know, some something a little bit different than obviously what I was used to around the United States when we traveled elsewhere. So um, kind of cute. Yeah. So you said that you sort of came into contact with this issue of polygamy and you could no longer ignore it. So what was the, what was the event that started all of this? Um, you know, frankly, it was an email um, that we received from um, a pastor friend of ours. Uh, I guess some lady had walked into the church that we attend and said, would you be willing to put out kind of a an SOS, so to speak, if there were anybody that'd be willing to open their homes for people who were leaving polygamy. And um, my husband and I are, are ones that responded to that and said, well, we've got the extra room. Of, of course, we'd open our home if need be. And so um, I, uh, the lady reached out to us. We kind of went through a little bit of an interview process. And then um, it wasn't until about a year and a half later after we said yes, did we get a phone call that um, there were two ladies and three, actually four children, um, that were getting ready to leave. And we had actually planned on them leaving on a Saturday. And the, um, we got a, we got a sudden call on Tuesday that said, um, the husband had come home early. He had multiple wives and, um, he actually worked, um, in another area. He worked on the Indian reservation. And so, um, he had come home early and she had barricaded herself in an upstairs bedroom. And one of the people that was going to help her leave that Saturday happened to be driving by the home. And, um, he was just kind of scouting it out, trying to see what he was up against. And he saw her waving her arms in the upstairs bedroom for help. And, at that point, I guess the police was called and, you know, I wasn't there on hand, but a myriad of circumstances happened where the police came and because the home was technically in the husband's name, all they could do was, you know, keep him at bay. And she threw um, her children's clothes in garbage bags and grabbed some books, um, jumped in her van, and she started driving and her children um, which was which was a good thing, happened to be at a relative's home when this all occurred. And she drove over to that home, picked them up, and I hadn't met her. I'd never spoken to them on the phone, and I got the call that they were heading towards our house that night. And 
they landed. Uh, the, the mother and the four children landed, and then the children's grandma came probably, I'd say, about an hour or so after that. And the sweet mother um, hugged me, which is, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but it's fairly odd. They don't do touch normally. And she whispered in my ear that the children think we're on vacation. And I said, okay, we can make that work. And we got them settled in the home. And then the mother and I sat out on the back porch and decided what we could do that week to make the kids think that they're on vacation. And so we planned, you know, things like, you know, swimming day and going to the park and just little things that were really actually big things to them. The About an hour after she landed, the mother showed up and my sweet, adoring husband said to the lady, we don't care really if you are Mormon, if you are Christian, if you are atheist, if you are Jewish, if you, we don't care who you are, um, but you do have a safe place and will be left unconditionally in our home. And so after they landed, uh, they lived with us basically throughout a summer. And, you know, my husband and I thought, you know, gosh, we opened up our home and, you know, our time and our space and um, cooked extra meals for the family. And we thought, you know, that would be hopefully enough to get them on their feet. But what really shocked us more than anything was really that they needed so much more. I mean, the reality of it is they're, they're usually very uneducated. Um, they um, obviously need mental help with everything that they've endured, whether they've been abused or not, you know, leaving everything and everyone you've ever known and going out into a world that you're told is evil. And, and by the way, you're condemned to hell. Um, who wouldn't need a little extra help? And so um, we w- realized quickly that we were really in trouble. Like we couldn't give them everything that they needed. So we started reaching out to neighbors and people at our church and anybody that would listen to give us additional help. And by the end of the summer, it was these sweet ladies that actually sat us down and said, so much more needs to be done. And uh, they estimated that 50% of their community would want to leave if there was a safe place to fall. Now, now, just to clarify, we're talking about FLDS, right? They, these were women from the FLDS community? community? No, that's what's, no, that's what's crazy. No. So these ladies happen to be from the All Red group. And they have been the most educated, um, the most well-adapted people we've ever seen since we started this organization. So um, it, for us, it even went further downhill from there of the gravity of what we were really dealing with in the state of Utah. So... Yeah, that, that actually surprises me too. And I want to talk about that. So, so you are first introduced to the All Red group. And for listeners to, as a reminder, that is who we see on TLC's sister wife show. That's the Brown family is from the All Red group. And like Tanya just mentioned, they are, you know, supposed to be known as one of the more modern groups that uh, they dress more modern in their clothing compared to the FLDS and, uh, they blend in fairly easily, I would say, with uh, mainstream Mormons in Utah. But Tanya, tell us, tell us how that, you know, sort of fueled um, holding out help, which is this amazing organization now. Um, you know, for us, when the ladies sat us down at the end of the summer and they were getting ready to transition out of our home, 
um, and they mentioned that we had fallen in love, obviously, with the family and had a great deal of respect for these ladies. And out of respect for the ladies, we we decided at the very least we would set on a fact-finding mission, and we would see what resources were here in the state of Utah to help people in this situation. And then we um, had initially thought that we'd start kind of like a website resource center where someone could go and log in and see what resources were out there. Um, again, trying to take kind of the easy way out. I had no intentions of um, quitting being a stay-at-home mother and starting a nonprofit at that time in my life. But um, after about four months, um, there were a lot of great resources in Utah. There were also a lot of gaps, but what I guess stunned us the most was that even the resources that were out there really didn't understand the culture, and I didn't feel like many really wanted to understand this culture. And so at that point, my husband and I just really felt like these people needed, you know, somebody who would be able to walk, basically handhold them through a process to get on their feet without judgment, without pressure of anything um, other than getting them the resources they needed to be able to stand on their own two feet. And so we um, figured we would step out and uh, start a very small nonprofit um, and take them into our own personal home, help rehabilitate, get them out, and then take the next family in or the next individual in. We did that for probably three, well, actually three years solid. We were never without people. I remember one time we had 16 people in our home, 12 were children. But after the first year, it was very evident that we needed some serious help. I think the first year we served 30 people and then the next year was 60 and it just, it kind of kept snowballing from there and we realized there was a much bigger issue here in Utah and so many more people in need. So that's how we, we started small and kind of exploded way beyond anything we could have ever imagined. Just as an aside, Tanya has been really helpful to me because since doing this podcast, I have people contact me almost daily, you know, people going through a faith crisis that come out of fundamentalism. And so, you know, that's something that I have in common with my LDS community. And, but I, I don't think I was prepared for some of the challenges that um, people that leave these groups face. And Tanya has been very kind and generous enough to help walk me through some of that because it's, it's so layered. Um, like you said, the education is an issue and, um, Abuse can be an issue, and I want to talk about all of those, but I don't think that even I, who had spent, you know, a year and a half on the history, understood how deep, deeply rooted some of these cultural aspects were. What is acceptable in mainstream society and, and all of these kind of things that it's kind of unexpected. But Tanya, I want to talk to you about polygamy because obviously that's what this podcast is about. And I try to be really careful to not condemn the practice outright. And I know that that's hard for a lot of my listeners, but I'm always trying to keep an open mind to people's choices and people's lifestyles. And yet there is evidence that shows polygamy can be an abusive lifestyle. And so I want you to kind of talk about that if you're comfortable. Talk about what you have seen as a result of a polygamous lifestyle. Well, um, first of all, I I really admire you, Lindsay, in the aspect of people living their lives and having just that free choice on the lifestyle that they choose for themselves. And so, and I, and I also want to say that people from this culture, many of them are my friends. Uh, many still live this lifestyle, and I 
I very much respect and um, and love these people. And so with that being said, I, I am very careful, you know, kind of painting with a broad brush that because they practice polygamy makes them evil because I, I, I have not found that. Um, as a matter of fact, I found quite the opposite, that most of the people that we serve that come from this culture really are some of the most sincere um, and sweetest people I've ever met. But there is a, a huge, um, I don't know what you want to call it, but a, a brokenness um, where these people come from in the sense that the hierarchy um, definitely and sadly does take advantage of their people um, in a myriad of ways. And I have unfortunately found that across the board, no matter what community they come from. So I guess your listeners do need to understand that we may be talking a little bit about the FLDS here, but holding out help um, serves anybody that comes from this culture, whether they're from the Kingston group, the AUB, also known as the All Red group, the FLDS, or any other, you know, independent groups um, out there. And so, um, but what we, you know, definitely have found is that there is, you know, let, let me just paint this picture, Lindsay, and and I maybe you don't want to go here yet, but the picture that, um, you know, most of the people, what I learned moving into Utah was there. there's basically this undercurrent here is the best way to describe it, where um, there are so many people living under what I refer to as a dictatorship, um, where every decision is made for them from what to wear, watch, eat, read, whom to associate with, even down to whom they can marry. Um, men or women usually own anything in these groups, so they they usually don't own their homes, their cars, um, you know, in the SLDS specifically, they even have to write down all their furniture items they have in their home, all their clothing items. So you would have to put down, I've got three, you know, shirts, I've got two pairs of pants. And if they feel there's someone more in need, they will mandate that you give up your furniture, that you give up your clothing um, for somebody else more in need than you. Um, No, and I'm glad you brought this up because uh, what we need to say explicitly is, and this is what I've told my listeners since my listeners are predominantly from the LDS group, that we are part of this culture. And if I were to put it, you know, put us on a little spectrum with a little slider, it's just all a matter of degrees, right? And so a lot of LDS people can relate to what you're saying to a point and you can slide it up and down the scale. And in some ways, the LDS culture is more strict than some fundamentalist, you know, groups. And in other ways, it's not. And so, um, that's why, that's why I was just asking about the term polygamy because I found in this sort of group of people and activists and, and lawmakers, there's this conflict between polygamy, religion, and then just the communities itself. And I have not, I have been criticized for not being anti-polygamy enough, but you seem to really have a good balance of respecting both sides of the issue, which I, which I would hope to have too. Anyway, continue. Yeah, no. And, you know, I, I, yeah. So I don't, I don't know what to say there other than, um, you know, I think you and I are kind of on the same page that I, we always try to remain fairly neutral. Do I think polygamy, um, with, with my own faith is the way God intended? Absolutely not. But on the other hand, 
um, there is an element of free choice. My problem comes in when there are innocent children, especially that are brought into this lifestyle that did not make that choice. And then they suffer the consequences, you know, of, you know, whoever the leaders are that make the decisions for those people. So are you saying that the root issue, if you were to name it, I know it's complicated, but is not necessarily plural marriage itself, but maybe the way that the hierarchy runs the groups? Does that make sense? Um, Yes, I definitely would say that. But when you also look into a lot of, you know, the doctrinal issues, I mean, that it runs pretty deep in itself that it's an everlasting covenant and that, you know, you will be condemned to hell if you don't practice it and to, and to live it well, you have to, um, to reach the celestial kingdom, you must live it. And it's just, it's just something that I don't think is innately natural. And it comes with a lot of, um, the, the, the mental issues of it's not enough to live it, but you actually have to believe it. So, you know, for a female, you know, if their heart is if they're saying one thing, they're practicing it, but they don't feel that way. And there's a lot of animosity, a lot of anger, um, you know, within the marriage with the sister wives or whatever, you know, that's not enough. They have to tell themselves over and over and over, this is right. I'm happy in this. This is the way it's meant to be. It's, you know, as the first uh, family that left explained, you tell yourself that over and over and over because you, you have to believe it. You have to believe it in your heart and your mind. Otherwise, it's not enough to get to the celestial kingdom. And so there, there's so many layers in that that I, I, it, I don't necessarily even know that we need to get into. But, you know, when we come down to, you know, before how it's explained it's such a socialistic environment and every decision is made for them. And then they come out into our world and they're told that, you know, we are as evil as they come. You're not allowed to talk to other, you know, members who have left that are considered apostates. And by the way, you're now condemned to hell. These people have very little hope. And and I would say um, statistically, Lindsay, there's probably at least 90% of those people that we serve have been abused, whether it's mentally, physically, sexually. And, and sadly, we have found over 75% of the clients that we serve have been sexually molested. Now, I also want everyone and your listeners to keep in mind that we probably do see the worst of the worst. But lately, we've even had people that have come out that would have stayed in had they not, you know, been kicked out and claimed that it was a happy life and, and their childhood was great where memories are now rising up due to triggers here in our society where they're even saying, oh, my gosh, I now remember that I was sexually molested as well. And it's just, um, I don't know, it, it's, it's just really hard to take, frankly. So there is a lot of, they come out with nothing, you know, and, and no hope. This interview is so difficult for me because I feel like there are a hundred different places we could go with it and a hundred questions I could ask you because I'm telling you guys out there that if there's anyone that has the most stories out there, it's Tanya. She has seen it. She has seen it all. And so, um, oh, it's so hard for me to narrow down my questions, but why don't you tell us some of the situations that you've seen? Um, maybe from a spectrum of variety of groups, if that's possible. Yeah. So um, why don't I start, Lindsay, maybe with 
an example of the, the last two years, we've gotten a lot of youth that are leaving, um, or frankly, that are being kicked out. And, and a lot of our children are coming, and I mean children from the ages of anywhere between, we get calls as young as 11. We've had kids leave as young as 13, um, all the way up, obviously, through their 20s. But right now, it's been between 13 and 17 years old that seems to be kind of on the rise in the last two years. And most of these children have been in what they refer to as houses of hiding or repentance homes for years. And so um, I, I think one of the, what the one of the stories that I'd like to share maybe is a, a child named Wade. And um, he would not mind that I share the story. He, he recently allowed me to speak about this. So he came out probably a couple years ago. He had been in a repentance home for two years, and the repentance home happened to be run by his father. And he, in the repentance home, he expressed to me that um, he was hit over the head by two by fours or the back of the um, legs, his back, usually done at night as a form of punishment. He was withheld food on a regular basis. He was kicked out in horrific weather um, with only a thin blanket um, on his back. And and I, I remember as he was talking to me, he wouldn't look at me in the eye, and I noticed one of his eyes was crossed. And I said, you know, what happened to your eye? And he said, well, he said, I was on a four-wheeler that I wasn't supposed to be on, and the four-wheeler flipped and landed on me, and it damaged my eye, and my father did not feel I was worthy enough to get it fixed. And I said, hmm, how long ago was that? And he said, well, it's been roughly about four years now. And I said, that is so sad. And I said, now, the home that you came from, I had heard was raided. Um, three days after you guys had left there, can you tell me about the shed out back? And that's when he slumped completely over and leaned his head even further down. And the young man said, well, yes, I can. What do you want to know about the shed? And I said, well, it looked like when they raided the place that there was a fire pit, tried, a fire that was trying to be made inside of that shed, and there were some empty cans laying around. And he just very quietly, he said, I built that fire. And I said, okay, son, can you tell me why you built that fire? And he said, I built that fire because I thought I was going to die that night and I wanted to live. He said, I was in trouble and I was sent out in below zero degree temperatures with only a thin blanket. Um, He didn't have any food, actually. Those cans were from other boys, obviously, that had been in there. And he said, I was sent out for a day and a half. And he said, I really honestly thought I was going to die. So he built that fire to live. Well, sadly, they had moved then to Idaho where the abuse continued in another repentance home under the same caretaker. Around that time, I had had a little boy dropped off on my actual doorstep at my home, the only child that's ever been dropped off at my home in the middle of the night. And that boy described um, very similar circumstances. Um, the home, because of all the information that we were able to get, um, was raided, and there were nine young boys in there. And the state of Idaho sent every single child back to their mothers, except for two that went into foster care, and that was only because a wonderful attorney, a very high-powered attorney, decided to take two of the cases on pro bono for us and um, got those boys into a foster home. And 
sadly, they were not only sent back to their mothers, but the mothers immediately listened to the leaders. And I, and I don't fault the mothers. I need you to hear me loud and clear. They are under enormous pressure to do exactly what they're told or they will lose all of their children. Um, most of them have already been separated from their husbands. Those women then turned around and released them back into the workforce to do hard labor all over the United States. Those are the boys that are coming to us one at a time, slowly but surely. That's the sad thing. Uh, Wade, well, the first thing we did is we took him in and we got his eyes fixed. Um, and he's one of the most handsome young men you'll ever meet. He's in a host home. He's getting educated. He plays hockey. He's never been happier. He's getting his pilot's license right now. He's just a phenomenal young man. And he would never have had that opportunity if he wasn't brave enough to run. Yeah, I just saw his, I think it was his prom pictures the other day. He's so great. Yeah. Okay. So you just, you sort of mentioned that mothers um, are under a lot of pressure. So let's talk about that for a minute, because that's a question when we talk about, you know, the, the women who give their kids to the church or their kids are taken away or they're sent away. The, the question that I always get is, why would the mother allow that? So do you want to kind of talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. And I, and I please I ask your listeners to have a lot of grace and understanding with this. Remember, these women have been born and bred into this culture first off. And they are taught that when they have children, those children are not theirs. Those children belong to God. And obviously, the prophet hears from God. So those children are property of the church. And they are to do exactly what they're told with their children. Otherwise, if they do not, they have the risk of all of their children being condemned to hell. And all that weight rides in the coattails of the mother. So I quite often see when a child leaves, I often see that the mother is sent off into repentance right after. And the only link that we can gather from that is that they do not think that the mothers were worthy enough to keep their son in line or their daughter in line. And so they now are being punished because of it. Do we see the same sort of punishment with men. I know men are sent away for all sorts of reasons as well, but um, I know that this is a motivation to keep people in the groups. They don't, they know that it will affect their family. So does it affect women disproportionately in your opinion? Um, not necessarily. I think it's, it's different for men and women, but I think it's probably just as detrimental to both. And I know many people think that the men in these communities are the evil ones. And, and let me tell you, there are, some evil men in these communities, but the, for example, right now, my examples I'm giving you are primarily from the FLBS, and that probably aren't the number one client that we serve. The men, can you imagine, again, born and bred, but they're on this enormous roller coaster where, you know, you must have multiple wives. You have all these children. You've got to figure out a way to care for all of them. But by the way, your number one duty is to work for the church and bring as much money in so the church can carry on at the same time. So, and if they make one mistake, guess what? They lose their entire family. And most of the men these days you will find have been separated from their wives and their children. And they're usually sent off into isolation. So they will be told, um, you now need to go somewhere in the United States where you have no contact with 
anybody. And you need to repent from afar. You need to work and send all of your money back to the church. And you need to send repentance letters of everything that you have ever done wrong in your life. Once we feel that you have told us the truth and God will tell us that you told us the truth, only then will you be allowed to come in back into the community and into the fold and reunite with your family. The unfortunate thing is we usually don't ever see them reunited with their family because the wives are usually reassigned to other men or other caretakers. And so it is, it's kind of a, obviously it's a control mechanism for them to keep people in line. And most of our men have full-fledged breakdowns. By the time we get them, they're a complete mess. Yeah. And um, just as a, I'm trying to remember if we covered this with our listeners when we talked about the FLDS, but one of the practices that Warren has really ramped up, we can trace it a little bit to his father. And and I think that there were two known cases to Leroy Johnson, but this idea of reassigning families to um, other people. And so, for example, when I went down to Colorado City, met a man who was living at a home with his son and the home was given to him by the federal trust and his wife and daughters were still in the group. So he got to see them in town, but they could not speak to them. They were, because he was wicked and sent away, they were reassigned to another family. And of course all the marriages are now annulled, but, um, yeah. And, and the women and the children believe this. And so women, when their children are reassigned, they just kind of have to, take it. Well, they do. And again, you you have to remember that the children's salvation will rest in the hands of what the mother and father do. And so you want to do whatever you can to get those kids to heaven instead of hell. So you're going to do exactly what you're told for the sake of those that you love. And that's the sickness in all this. Yeah. And, and it's so funny. We struggle with this in the LDS culture too, this idea of there's such an emphasis placed on the family, the eternal family. But when it becomes so prescribed, um, if you don't fit or if you do things a little bit differently, then it can be really destructive to the family. Talk to me about, um, one of the questions that people ask me all the time are what happens if you're gay in these communities? You know, it, it's interesting. I, unfortunately, um, you know, they're shunned. I mean, I don't, I don't know what to say other than they're obviously not accepted at all. We've had, like, we had one boy that came out and it was clear to me that he was probably gay and was not voicing at the time. And when he finally had his breakdown, he expressed that one of the uh, men in the community that had wives and children, he was having sexual relations with. And this man told this young, this boy um, that we were serving that he loved him. And um, once the boy realized that he was never going to be his fully, he had a breakdown. He left. And um, it's it kind of brushed under the rug and really nobody talks about it, just like the sexual molestation. And, and, and they're not accepted. They're completely shunned and they're told they're going to hell. So that poor boy left with zero hope, heartbroken, and really thought he was going to hell at the end of the day. And we had explained to him that that is not truth in any former fashion and that there were people out here that loved him regardless. And he couldn't understand that after he shared that information that we would still even have a conversation with him. He was mm-hmm. blown away that we would still care and provide services for him. But they're, they're condemned to hell is what they're told. 
And, and yeah, I usually answer that question with, they don't exist. <laughs> Not to say that they, that they don't exist because of course they exist, but I mean, you do everything you can to, to hide that. And, and, you know, I've heard rumors of there have been several suicides or mysterious deaths of, you know, teenage children from the FLDS and, and the Kingston group as well that I've heard. And, um, you know, this is a problem that we struggle with in the LDS church too. So. Yeah, and it's so sad. It it's so sad when you get to a point where you can't you know it is absolutely impossible to live up to the standards that were put before you and you when you don't have hope and you're going to hell at that point, why not give up? Right? You're going there anyway, so why not just take your life and get it over with now? And it is horrible that any human being would ever have to feel that kind of despair. Talk to me a little bit about um the secrecy and the abuse. So in, this is something that I remind my listeners all the time. And again, I, you know, some of my fellow Mormon friends will accuse me of being too harsh on the LDS church, but I really feel like I cannot go into another culture like the FLDS and condemn them when my own culture has plenty of problems with abuse and with cover-ups and, you know, we're dealing with a big thing at BYU right now with uh, reporting of sexual assault. But I want, I want to see if you can kind of pinpoint in the work that you do some of the reasons that maybe, um, why abuse is so high in these communities, what facilitates it, what prevents people from getting the resources they need? Well, um, the only, the only, um, way to describe that is really just from stories of my clients and what I've been told. Um, there was a, for example, there was a young girl who, the most heartbreaking story I've actually seen from uh, the FLDS, she was uh, sent into another home and her father actually went with her, but she had her biological brothers and then she had brothers now from another family. And as she described for 21 years of her life, she was raped on a daily basis. She said she would go upstairs and be raped by her brothers, and she would go downstairs and be raped by the other brothers. And she said finally one day she went to her father, and her father, she uses these words, and I don't, I'm going to say the word, and if you have to believe it out, that's fine, but he said she bitch slapped me, and he threw me on the bed that I was just raped on, and he raped me. He said, don't ever talk about this again. Well, this young woman remembers from a very young age being snuck out in the middle of the night by she, the only thing she can say is somebody that she was familiar with. They would take her to the meeting house. She remembers being chained to a metal bed and men all around her. And she says she would go completely out at that point. She doesn't know if they put her to sleep, if they drugged her, if it was too much for her to handle, but she would wake up in the morning with her hair down, her garments off and be left alone in that room. Um, and she knew she was raped, obviously, through the night. And the only thing that I can explain is that it's kind of so normal in there because it started from the hierarchy and passed down. And you you don't go ask for help. It, I mean, you can't make one mistake, right? If you make one mistake, you're condemned to hell or you're kicked out or you're separated from your family and so on and so on. So there is no option for them but to endure that abuse or to finally say, I've had enough and run away or take their lives. Yeah, it's pretty bleak. And um, it's so funny because one of the things that the work that I think that I do with with these groups is 
the f- sort of faith crisis stuff, right? Because I understand what it's like to question your world, your worldview, and it's it's really disorienting. And, you know, I was talking to, in our last interview, uh, Jeremy Tucker from the Kingston Group, and we were just kind of joking that even though you're out in the world and you've sort of unpacked the religion of your youth, it still creeps up on you in these ways. And, um, it's really, it's really hard to describe to people who haven't been through it. And again, the LDS is on a spectrum. So I would say in a lot of ways, it was, it's way easier for LDS people to, who lose their faith to adjust. But I mean, we still see families breaking up and that kind of thing. And which is difficult. So, so let me, let me, let me just ask you this really quickly. Did you yeah. just say that you think it's easier for the LDS? when they leave, when they're in a faith crisis and leave their faith to adapt, then it is easier for an FLDS person? I, I, I mean, I want to say that. I, 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 before I did this work, I have dealt with literally thousands, thousands of people who um, share their stories and people lose their families, people lose their businesses. That happened to me. And so, um, but I, what I, what I guess I mean is that part is difficult, but I think for the most part, LDS people are more fluent in mainstream culture. So it's not as disorienting. You know, like I had a proper education. I um, could read and write. And those are some, talk about maybe some of those obstacles that people face in these communities. So, um, well, keep in mind that when they are leaving, um, they usually leave with the clothes on their back. Um, they usually have been abused. They have anywhere between a sixth and an eighth grade education level. And when I say sixth to eighth grade, that means they're usually a year to two years behind our public school system. Um, they usually suffer from, you know, PTSD. They have no contact with their family, friends, or anybody else for that matter. Um, and they come out into the world that they're completely ill-equipped to deal with because out here in our world, we get to make decisions. And there where they're at, every decision is made for them. So imagine you're born and bred into this. You're you're doing, let's say, homeschool the best that they can to a certain age. Usually at age 12, the boys then are going off into the workforce and doing hard labor all over the United States, and the money is being sent back to the church. And the girls around age 12 are sent off to learn to go into training, basically, to become mothers and wives. And so they learn to cook and clean and how to please their husbands and so on. Then they come out into our world. And they don't know what their favorite color is. They don't know what their favorite food is. They've never opened a checking account. They don't even know what proper boundaries are between a boy and a girl because they've been separated from them their entire life. They know virtually nothing. They're starting from scratch, basically, as an infant in a lot of ways. And so we have to walk them through every aspect of life to get them on their feet. And again, that's what I'm saying when I, you know, sort of naively just wanted to help after the series. I, I had no idea the depth of what it is that you do. And not only do you do this, but I have to, I have to say Tanya does this well. She has a very well-respected organization that's financially sound. Um, they have intake process for, you know, people that come in. It is very well structured and I think, I mean, it's just, everything is just so well organized. And so I have to give you a lot of credit for that. I think, that in a lot of polygamy organizing, it's not that way just because so many people are um, dealing with such dysfunction. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think it's a, 
Um, and I appreciate the kind words. The reason we do things the way we do is because the environment that they come from, they are taught that if you need something, you have to ask for it. And so we have to retrain them in a sense that, no, you have to do the hard work and go out and make a life for yourself. And so if we hand them things as they are asked, asking us for it, I should say, then we are keeping them stunted and we are not acclimating them into the real world and they won't be able to stand on their own two feet. And so, you know, when they come into our system, they know very clearly up front that they either have to be working, getting educated, um, or having a job where they are saving up money to get on their own, um, or they have to be going to full-time counseling or a myriad of the three. So they have to be engaged and doing the hard work needed to move forward. And if they're willing to do that, we will go to the end of the earth for them. If they are not willing to do that and they keep just, you know, calling on the LDS church to give them stuff, calling on any agency, any person that will listen to give them free handouts, these will pull back immediately only for the simple fact that we do not want them dependent on us or anybody else because that's not how our world works. And that is, we could do more damage than we could good for them at that point. So, and we don't have the finance, obviously, on this long term. You know, we we have an organization that the podcast is under and um, we we do lots of things. So we help, you know, the homeless shelter out here and and all kinds of things that aren't just related to polygamy. But we have done a few things because my goal is to integrate the LDS community with these other communities because I feel like we have a lot to learn from one another. And so we have done a few things. And um, it's funny because... I really feel strongly about your mission, what you're talking about, which is proper activism in that you're not sort of strengthening or building up the same structures that lead to the oppression. And, you know, in rescue organizations, especially, it's hard to do that because, like I said, my my impulse is just to help, give them whatever they need. And sometimes that's not really what they need is to have everything handed to them. Right. So, well, and, and, and let me tell you, I was a caretaker. I mean, that's, that's how I kind of rolled. When I started this, I did. I wanted to handle, hand people things on a silver platter, but I found I was keeping them in the same place and they weren't moving forward as quickly. So I did a lot of trial and error before I seemed to get this right. <laughs> yeah. Well, so let's talk about that a little bit because people out there I know want to get involved and they want to help. So how, what, what kind of things do you need? What kind of resources? do you provide that people could help with? Um, just talk about, tell us what you need. How can we help? So we do, um, like I said, everything a refugee coming in from another country would need. So we offer food, clothing, shelter, um, counseling services, you know, education, and even the most basic workshops. But you could do little things like, yeah, a lot of our people will be able to get on food stamps, but food stamps do not cover the most basic hygiene items. Like we're always in need of toilet paper, paper towels, uh, pads for women, um, the most basic hygiene items like shampoos and conditioners and soap. Laundry detergent is a big one and dishwashing soap is a big one. Um, you could sponsor a child. Um, when we put these children into what we refer to as host homes, uh, we pay a stipend of about $250 per month to cover the basic necessities um, for um, their care. We tutors, we sometimes need volunteer tutors. So if there are people that are here in the Salt Lake Valley, we are trying to gear up to start a new tutoring program in the fall down at our center where there will be tutors on hand for three hours, uh, three times a week. So these kids who are highly uneducated can go into their same 
grade so they're socially getting adjusted to what they need to, but then have the extra support on the back end to bring their um, education up to par. Um, you know, there, there's so many different things. Ongoing monthly financial donations, you know, $25 a month, $50, $75, whatever that looks like. That's what we live off of. So we don't, um, we don't ask for state funding. We don't. We're just barely starting grant writing. We have been funded for the last eight to nine years off of solely individual donations. So people who just feel a need to support this cause and, so far, we've been able to keep our head above water simply off of that, and our budget now is up to about 275000 per year, and we are making it, thank God, to the many people out there who are just making an ongoing monthly financial donation, no matter how small. So, And i got to say, that isn't that much for how many people you serve. You guys do a lot with your money. Yeah, we do. We stretch it. So you'll you'll find we average... Um, some years we've gotten down to about three hundred and thirty some dollars per person per year. Last year, our budget we were able to rehabilitate people for roughly around twenty five hundred per year per person. And so, because of the many volunteers that work with us, your dollar is stretched to the max. So just know that when you donate, we do take that very seriously. We try to be great stewards with the money given to us. So. Do you, would you take volunteers from, say, mental health professionals or legal counsel, anything like that? Always. Um, we're always looking for legal um, counselors, obviously, because of all the legal issues that we deal with. Um, volunteer counselors I'm a little more careful with because we can't have, um, you know, you come out and they're told that counselors are, brain, they will brainwash you, um, you know, they're the most terrific things that you can see and getting them to trust one is very important. And then if they were pulled out of their lives or they wouldn't, weren't, you know, effective, um, it can do more damage than good. So we're real careful there. Mechanics are a big one that we always need. People that want to donate their used cars instead of sell them, they can get a tax write-off for that. Um, handymen, huge that we need. Um, women that want to come in and clean our facilities and our emergency houses, that's always needed. So there's a lot of different ways that people can actually get involved in our organization. And I'm going to link to the site so people can contact you there. Is there a better way to contact you through the, than through the site, or is the site probably the most productive way? Um, the site is where you get information, but our, you know, and I, our phone number is on there, but uh, the main line is 801-548-3492, and um, our admin will answer and, and send out a volunteer application if those people, you know, out there that want to get more involved can, so... And I do want to say something about the the mental health um, angle. That's something else that I learned because we were sponsoring a woman, and you know who I'm talking about. She went through such trauma that we learned pretty quickly that a regular therapist was not equipped to deal with torture is, is basically what some of these people have gone through. And, you know, this stumbling block of polygamy shame in Utah, which is, again, my goal for integration and um, is to try to eradicate this idea that Mormons, LDS Mormons, don't want to think about, look at, or remember polygamy. We want to pretend it's something that happened in the past or it's something our great-great-grandfathers did. We don't want to look at it now. And so we find that with mental health professionals, too. They just don't understand how people got here. And and that's my biggest frustration. I wish people understood the history that people come by it honestly. It's not that they're, you know, these weirdos down in southern Utah. 
people come by it honestly. Yeah, absolutely. There's some, and people are like, they have to be uneducated. They have to be dumb to believe. And you know what? They might not have a high education level, but they're, they're very smart people. And um, you're right. I mean, it, it started with the Mormon history at the end of the day. And what we learned with holding out help is that we can't do this alone. We need, and we always talk about this, we need people of every walk of life to step up around us to take a stand and make a difference. That is the only way we are going to help these people and help these people effectively. And I mean every walk of life. I don't care if you're religious or not. I don't care if you're LDS or not. Everybody needs to get involved in this. Oh, I did actually, there's, there is one thing that I have to say because this is a question that comes up all the time and I, and I figure you can address it. A lot of LDS people who leave the LDS church that want to help with this cause get concerned that, um, Holding Out Help started as a Christian organization. So do you want to talk about that really quick? Yeah, sure. So we are not um, a Christian organization. However, I'll be very clear that I started this organization because um, of what Christ did for me and just the love that he gave me that I just wanted to pour out into others. So I know people are scared of the Christian organization. I am a Christian, and I love the Lord, and I do that out of... um, really just getting back because of what he's done for me. But we have every walk of life that, you know, walks along the side of us. And so everybody's welcome. There's nobody that's going to preach to anybody. Um, as a matter of fact, you'll probably find a lot of great friends there, and we're all from different walks of life, and we all just care for each other equally. So it doesn't matter where they're from. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up. I deal with that on a regular basis. And and honestly, it's my circle of, you know, who I'm with most of the time. And so there are a lot of the Christian community that actually has stepped up alongside of us. And frankly, you know, a lot of the mainstream culture here has not wanted to touch it with a 10-foot pole. So we, we are kind of cornered into us. So, but, but we do. We're getting more and more LDS people that are stepping up. And it's been an absolute blessing. They've become some of my dearest friends. So it, it's been fun. Yeah, that's great. And I would remind listeners um, who are LDS that we kind of know what it's like to sort of be marginalized because of your religion. And so, uh, you know, that was my concern at first. I think that was the one, one of the first things I asked Tanya about because, you know, um, I know a lot of people that leave these groups feel, to use Andrew Chatwin's phrase, bruised by religion. And I really can endorse Tanya in this angle that their organization is not out to convert anyone or to keep them, you know, or to lead them to the right, you know, arm of Christianity or anything like that. So, well, and well, and let me, let me say it this way. I am probably one of the least religious people you'll ever meet, but I do love God at the end of the day. And so, and I, it would be very arrogant for me to say that I have any power to convert anybody. That's not my job. My job is solely to love people unconditionally, period. So I just want to make that super clear about where my heart lies. Well, I appreciate that. Well, that's fantastic. Is there anything else you want our listeners to know? Gosh, I don't know, Lindsay, other than I um, I can't really say enough about you. Um, you are one of the bravest women I know, and you've done a lot for this cause. I've seen your postings on Facebook, and I know this isn't about you, Lindsay, but um, you're you're pretty amazing, and I hope you know that I see what you're doing from afar, and I appreciate all your support, especially this today, getting awareness out. Awareness is the biggest thing, and if your listeners tell one other person and nothing financial comes in, it was worth it because someone else might get in fire for this cause. So thank you. 
No, and and again, I would say the exact same thing about you, except to add that you've been doing this a long time. <laughs> I don't know how you do it without getting so worn out because it's it's dark, heavy work sometimes. So I really admire that. Thank you. So everybody go support Holding Out Help. Well, thanks, Tanya, for coming on and taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, thank you, Lindsay. Really appreciate you. Don't forget to join us at one of our many Sunstone events, including the largest Sunstone Symposium in Salt Lake City every year, the last weekend in July. In 2016, we will have several individuals from multiple fundamentalist groups so we can break bread with them and learn from them and exchange stories. Join us and register at sunstone.org. Also, if you like this music, check out Lady Murasaki on Facebook. 